Let's turn our Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 8, page 398 in the Adoration Bibles. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 29 of the chapter. We're continuing on our series through God's dealings with the kings of Israel and Judah during the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. And what we've seen thus far is that God has been dealing with His people very graciously. God has, has warned them. God has chastised them, but God has not ceased to be gracious toward them. He's been long-suffering with His people, and we see that here in verses 16 to 29. This is God's holy word. Now, in the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began his reign. He was 32 years old when he became king. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old and he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And Ahaziah also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Haziel, king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, once again, we're confronted with spiritual darkness and depravity. We're confronted with with wicked kings who don't think they need God, who don't think they need the Word of God. We're confronted with wicked kings who rather than, than following the pattern of King David, the man for God's own heart, we're met with kings who are following in the pattern of the kings of the world. Only now the lens has shifted from the north to the south. Ever since 1 Kings 22, we've been dealing with the north, and we've come to expect darkness in the north, for the northern tribes of Israel have been afflicted by 
one wicked king after the next. Their first king, you remember, was, was King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's first act of business was to do what? To, to set up golden calves and Dan and Bethel, to set up his own priesthood, to discourage God's people from making their yearly pilgrimages to Israel, to, to Jerusalem rather. But after Jeroboam, things got much, much worse. Because after the dynasty of Jeroboam came the dynasty of, of King Omri. And through King Omri came King Ahab. And Ahab superseded the wickedness of every king who had come before him. Because Ahab took for his wife Queen Jezebel. And through Ahab and Jezebel, Baalism was brought into the land of Israel. We know that his wife Jezebel was not content to, to worship her religion privately, but when she took up residence in Samaria, she brought a, a horde of Baal enthusiasts with her. And she was bent on killing all the prophets of the Lord. So that by the time of the prophet Elijah, the faithful remnant in Israel had been reduced to mere 7,000 souls. So wicked was the house of Ahab that in the wake of Naboth's murder, God said that he was going to destroy Ahab's house forever. Now, we've been waiting for that destruction to happen. We haven't seen the, the destruction of, of Ahab's house yet, but we've seen Ahab's house beginning to deteriorate. His son Ahaziah, we know, only reigned in Israel for two short years, but in those two years, Moab rebelled against Israel before Ahaziah died after falling through his lattice. And things haven't improved under his brother, Ahab's second son, Joram, because in the reign of Joram, Moab's rebellion was made final. And as we heard last time, the Syrians are coming. Hazael is coming. The kingdom of Ahab the house of Ahab is soon to be destroyed. You also know that the northern kingdom has not only suffered politically, but they've also suffered spiritually on account of the fact that, that the vast majority of the citizens of the northern kingdom have been following after the wickedness of their wicked kings. They too have, have gone to Baal. And they too have forsaken the Lord. And so the people of Israel have been afflicted not only with physical famines, but with spiritual famines as well. God has, on occasion, sent the prophets away. He sent Elijah away to Zarephath. He sent Elisha away to Damascus, and there was a, a famine of, of hearing the word of the Lord, as Amos said, would happen. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom, have forsaken the word of God, and they've forsaken the covenant of God, and they have refused to repent. And so, these were dark days for the people of Israel. But in our passage this morning, we learn that the sins of the north have, have tragically spread to the south. Like a, like a vicious cancer that spreads from one part of the body to the next, the false worship of Israel has now metastasized in Judah. So that darkness now covers both kingdoms. And were it not for the grace of God, this vicious downward spiral into darkness would have resulted and the world being lost in the dark forever. Here in 2 Kings 8, we're confronted with a, a stubborn people. We're confronted with a people who are, who are bent on backsliding. They are persistent in their disobedience to God. 
but we're also confronted with a stubborn God. Judah, like Israel, is now running towards destruction, and, and destruction is what Judah deserves. But what do we read in verse 19? Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. God was, was determined to keep the promise of which we just sang, I will cause the might of David ever more and more to grow on the path of mine anointed. I will make a lamp to glow. God is determined to, to keep that promise, to make a lamp of David glow. That lamp we know on this side of the New Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ. King Jesus is the, the lamp. He's the, the light of the world that shines in the darkness. And we see that lamp shining through in our passage this morning. We see the, the lamp of David shining brightly through the thick darkness of spiritual compromise. Boys and girls, how exactly did the, the darkness of Israel spread to the southern tribes of Judah in the first place? That's really the first question we need to ask this morning. The southern kingdom was the place where the promise of David was continuing. The, the southern kingdom is where the, the temple of God was, where the true priests of the Lord were serving. We've come to expect darkness in the north, but in the south, what's happened? What's changed? How has the, the darkness of the northern kingdom worked its way down into the southern kingdom? We discover the answer in verse 18. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, took for himself a wife who was not a child of God, but she was a child of Ahab and Jezebel. She was a believer in Baal. And when she took up residence in the palace in Judah, she brought her Baalism with her, just as her mother Jezebel had done in Israel. And this congregation is how the darkness that swept throughout the land of the northern kingdom came to sweep through the land of Judah as well. It came about through spiritual compromise. Years before Jehoram's father, Jehoshaphat, had made an ungodly alliance with Ahab's first son, Ahaziah. And in order to, to solidify that political alliance, Jehoshaphat arranged this marriage between his son Jehoram and Ahab's daughter Athaliah. Perhaps worried about the imminent threats of the surrounding nations, Jehoshaphat placed his trust in men and he sought to solidify that alliance with this marriage between Jehoram and Athaliah. So that the house of Ahab and the house of David are now joined together in an unholy alliance. And when Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, took the throne, the chickens came home to roost. Jehoram didn't walk in the ways of Jehoshaphat, who before had been a, a rather pious king, but Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and he did as the house of Ahab did. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Second Chronicles 21 speaks of some of the ways in which Jehoram's wickedness took shape. The chronicler tells us that when 
Jehoram ascended the throne, his first act of business was to kill all his brothers so that he would maintain his power at all costs. His second act of business was to set up high places in the hill countries. And so the Lord accuses him in 2 Chronicles 21 of, of inciting Judah to, to hoard him. He brought the worship of Baal into the southern kingdom of Judah. Foolishly, Jehoshaphat made an alliance with the house of Ahab, and now the chickens have come home to roost. For this alliance, we discover, has only led to spiritual, moral, and national disaster. Spiritual compromise has led to the mixing of the house of Ahab with the house of, of David, so that these two houses can hardly be distinguished from each other. That's what we're to make of all these all this name confusion, the, the house of David and the house of Ahab have gotten so close to each other that, that they're naming their sons in the exact same way. Ahab has a son named Joram, and Jehoshaphat has a son named Joram. Joram and, and Jehoram are just the same name. It's like Tim and Timothy. It's the same thing. Ahab has a son named Ahaziah, and Jehoshaphat has a grandson named Ahaziah. The Ahaziah of Judah is named after his wicked uncle, King Ahaziah of Israel. It's difficult to keep track of who's who. But that's the point the Spirit of Christ is, is making here. The house of Ahab and the house of David are starting to look just alike. You can't tell the difference between these two houses anymore. Their kings have the same names. Their people worship the same gods. And their kingdoms are both running in the same direction, running in the direction of destruction. King Jehoram of Judah walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like a vicious cancer, the sinfulness of the northern kingdom has spread to the southern kingdom. Ahab's Baalism was contagious. And so both kingdoms are running towards destruction. And so the Spirit of Christ is warning us this morning by highlighting this downward spiral into destruction. The Spirit of Christ is warning us so as to say this is, this is where spiritual compromise always leads. This is what it gets you. Spiritual compromise always leads to death and disintegration. It always leads to destruction. In both kingdoms, everything is, is falling apart. There are rebellions in the north and there are rebellions in the south. This great kingdom that David had built up, incorporating into his kingdom the Moabites and the Edomites, they're now rebelling against the kingdoms. Even Libnach, who is a natural city of Judah rebels against Judah. Everything is falling apart. And this congregation is where spiritual compromise always leads. It always produces disintegration. It always leads to destruction and demise. And this is the direction that Judah is now heading in as well. Judah is running headlong toward destruction. And so the Spirit of Christ is warning us, what should we expect? What should we expect when we, like the, the kings of Judah, mix in with the world? What should we expect when a, when a believer marries an unbeliever? 
What should we expect when, when we as the church forget the antithesis and, and imbibe the, the values and ideologies and practices of the world? We should expect disaster. We should expect things falling apart. And so throughout the Scriptures, we're reminded to resist this kind of spiritual compromise at all costs lest we be conformed to this world rather than be transformed by the renewing of our minds. James 1.27 says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In James 4 verse 4 we read, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an an enemy of God. Again, the Apostle Peter says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be set apart from the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul reminds us that bad company ruins good morals. In 2 Corinthians 6, he warns us further still by saying, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has the light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. For God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you. But Judah has forgotten these basic principles of a God-fearing life. She's forgotten to be holy. She's forgotten to be set apart. She's forgotten to live as those whom God has called out of the world. And so Judah's running headlong toward destruction. And destruction is indeed exactly what Judah deserves. Judah deserves to be destroyed for turning her back on the Lord. But to our great and pleasant surprise, what do we read in verse 19? Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Beloved, this verse should really amaze us because it's on the on the heels of the wickedness described in verse 18. We might expect to read the words, so the Lord determined to destroy Judah forever. God's laws concerning idolatry were so plain. The consequences for sin were so clear. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 28, If you do not obey the Lord your God, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and rebuke, and everything you put your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking Him. 
And so it should all be over. It should be finished for Judah. But this is not something that the Lord is willing to do. Why is that? Why is the Lord not willing to destroy Judah? Again, we find the answer in verse 19. For David's sake. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. God has not forgotten his promise to David. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord made a promise to David, saying, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, and your throne shall be established forever. And God has not forgotten that promise. God will not renege upon that promise. And if God did not, and if God would not forget His promise to David, do you imagine He'll forget or renege upon His promises to you? We sometimes wonder in the midst of our ongoing struggles with sin, when is the other shoe finally going to drop? When is God finally going to destroy me, be done with me? But then Christ comes to us in His Word, and He comes to us here in verse 19. And He says, yet the Lord. Yet the Lord. Or to put it in New Testament language, the Spirit comes to us, and, and He says, but God. As the Apostle Peter puts it in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were following the course of the world. You were by nature children of wrath. And and you might expect to read, and wrath is what you're going to get. But what does Paul say? You are by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, raised us up with Christ, made us alive with Christ, and seated us with Christ in heavenly places. As Paul says in Romans 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God. But God has shown His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To borrow the language of Lord's Day 23, even though our consciences accuse us of having sinned against all God's commandments, of, of not keeping any of His Laws, nevertheless, or yet God, as another version puts it, without any merit of our own, God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if we had never sinned nor been sinners, as if we had been as obedient as Christ was obedient for us. In this congregation is the sentiment of verse 19. On the heels of the Spirit's indictment against wicked Jehoram, and despite the fact that, that Judah's spiritual compromise should result in destruction, we read these words, yet the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Boys and girls, why didn't God destroy Judah? God didn't destroy Judah for David's sake. But this we know is on account of the fact that from David is going to come his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you could say God 
did not, he would not destroy Judah for Christ's sake. But we also know that Christ didn't come into the world for his own sake, but for our sake. And so we could go so far as to say that God would not, he did not destroy Judah for our sake. God was so determined to, to save you and to save me that he would not destroy Judah because from Judah would come the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, we see God's persistent grace towards his covenant promise and to his covenant people. And so when we come to verse 19, the gospel says that we can take out David's name, as it were, and you can put your own name there. Judah was heading for destruction. God should have destroyed Judah, but God would not destroy Judah for your sake, for the sake of the promise that he made to Ab and Eve and to Abraham and to David and through all the prophets leading up to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, we see the stubbornness of sin. We're confronted not just with the, the stubbornness of Jehoram's sin, but we're confronted with the stubbornness of our own sin because we know that just like Jehoram by nature, we too are, are prone to wander, prone to, to leave the God we love. But in verse 19, we see the stubbornness of our Savior. We discover that His grace is unrelenting. His grace is, is unyielding. His grace is unstoppable. And his gracious purpose to save you and to save me will not be thwarted. For there is more mercy in him than there is sin in us, Richard Sibb said. This ought to be our great consolation when we have fallen grievously into sin. That our Savior is more stubborn than our sin. Our Deliverer is more determined than your disobedience. Isn't this the glorious truth that we confess in the fifth head of the canons of Dort? That God, who is rich in mercy according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from us completely, even when we fall grievously. And he does not let us fall down so far as to forfeit the grace of adoption or to commit that sin that leads to death. But even when we have fallen grievously, the canons say, by his word and spirit, God certainly and effectively renews us to repentance so that we have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins we have committed. By His Word and Spirit, He causes us to, to seek forgiveness in the blood of the Mediator. And by His Word and Spirit, even when we have fallen grievously, He brings us to experience again the grace of a reconciled God as we by faith come to adore His mercies. Our Savior is more stubborn than our sin. Our Deliverer is more determined than our disobedience. God's preserving grace, of course, is not a license to sin. We shouldn't read passages like this from the can and say, well, I can just sin that grace may abound. Of course not. But the promise, the assurance of God's preserving grace, the canons say, is an incentive to, to flee from sin and to rest in your Savior. The Spirit's bidding us to run to the God of verse 19, who for David's sake, who for Christ's sake, who for your sake, 
would not destroy Judah, even though Judah deserved to be destroyed. Despite the darkness of Judah's spiritual compromise, even as everything begins to unravel, as Edom revolts, as Libna revolts, as things are going to become increasingly unstable in Judah, we know that Judah is heading for exile. Judah's heading for Babylon. That the Lord's covenant is going to remain stable. The ten tribes of the north, they're going to be lost in the Assyrian exile forever. But the southern kingdom through exile in Babylon, they're yet going to be brought back. Their life is going to be turned upside down because of their walking in the way of rebellion against God. But God and His covenant will be steadfast. In the midst of so much instability, God's covenant will remain stable. And the lamp of David will not be snuffed out. God will keep the promise he made. God will cause the might of David ever more and more to grow. On the path of his anointed, he will make a lamp to glow. And we know that's true because we sing that song on on this side of the New Testament. Knowing that the lamp has already come, that in him was the, the light of life. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, John says. He came saying, I am the the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. David's greater son has already come. And not only that, but now we can sing those words, I will cause a lamp to glow with the confidence that Christ is also coming again. The book of Revelation assures us that a day is coming when we'll see this greater son of David face to face. And in this new Jerusalem, John says, there's no darkness at all. That night is no more. Revelation 21 verse 23, the new Jerusalem has no need for sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God will give it light and its lamp is the Lamb says John. King Jesus is the Lamb. King Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain on account of our sin, the Lamb who endured all those curses of the covenant prescribed in Deuteronomy 28. God doesn't turn a blind eye to the sins of His people, but in His justice, He causes those curses to fall upon the Lamb and the Lamb. Here in 2 Kings 8, we see the lamp of David shining through, shining through the spiritual compromise, shining through the glory of the steadfast covenant. But that's not to say that judgment isn't still coming. And that's how our passage ends. That's the note our passage ends on with, with the condemnation that's coming. As things begin to unravel in Judah with Edom and Libna, rebelling against Judah, things are going to get much, much worse for the house of Ahab and Israel. In verses 25 and following, we read that after Jehoram, the son of Judah, Jehoram of Judah died, his son Ahaziah reigned in his place. The chronicler adds that when Jehoram passed away, no one grieved his death. No one was sorry to see Jehoram go. But Ahaziah also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did 
but was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. And notice again how many times Ahab's name appears. Three times in verse 27 alone. Again, the only thing that sets the southern kingdom apart from the northern kingdom is the promise to David. Otherwise, they're exactly the same. In verse 28, we read, King Isaiah went with his uncle Joram of Israel to make war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. Haziel, you'll remember from last time, is going to be God's chosen instrument to bring judgment on Israel. And so it comes as no surprise to us that Joram was severely wounded by the Syrians. He was forced to flee the battle lines. He tries to recover in Jezreel. And then we're told that Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see his uncle Joram in Jezreel because he was sick. And here's what's happening. The stage is being set. The stage is being set for what's going to happen in chapter 9. Both of these wicked kings are going to be assassinated by God's servant, Jehu. We read in 2 Chronicles 22, verse 7, that Ahaziah went to visit Uncle Joram in Jezreel because it had been ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah of Judah should come about through his going to visit Joram. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. Condemnation is sure to come. That's what's being set up here with a view to chapter 9. A day of reckoning is surely coming. And this is God's gracious word of warning to those who have not yet come into the light of the lamp of David by faith. As Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. I've been referencing that verse a number of times. That as things derail in Israel, it seems like where is the judgment of God, is it ever coming to Ahab? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but He is being patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The condemnation is sure to come. And so the Lord bids us to come to the lamp of David, to walk in the light. When you examine your life this morning, when you examine the different areas of your life, your home life, your school life, your social life, your work life, what do you see? What does God see? Is there spiritual compromise there? Is there spiritual compromise in your marriage? Is there spiritual compromise in your parenting? Is there spiritual compromise in the way you're using your, your free time? Are there areas of darkness in your life that need to be exposed, brought into the light of the gospel? God calls us to walk as children of the light. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 5 at one time? You were darkness. That's what you were, darkness. 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of the light. Are you walking as children of the light? Are you, are you taking the, the lamp of David with you wherever you go to light your way? If not, the Lord warns us that judgment is coming, that condemnation is coming. But God, who is rich in mercy, has been faithful to the promise he made to David. He has caused the mighty of David ever more and more to grow on the path of his anointed. He has made a lamp to glow. And so with the threat of judgment coming, God says, bask in the light. Bask in the light of the lamp. And he says, he bids us to sing. Blessed be the Lord forevermore, whose promise stands from days of yore. His word is faithful. That was then. Blessed be his name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great mercy, you have kept your promise to David. That you have caused the might of David ever more and more to grow. And that on the path of your anointed, you have made a lamp to glow. We know, Lord, that all his enemies shall perish, that you will cover them with shame. But that Christ's crown shall ever flourish. And so we say, blessed be his holy name. Father, we thank you that you have brought us into the light. To bask in the light of the lamp of David. Father, we pray that that lamp of David would lead us and guide us out of sin and out of unrighteousness and into the way of righteousness. Father, we pray that you would forgive us or we have compromised here and there. We have walked in the way of the world. We have imbibed the values and ideologies of the world. Lord, we pray that you would bid us the grace to run from compromise and to be steadfast in faithfulness to your covenant. Lord, we thank you that Christ is not only the lamp, but that he is also the lamb. He is the lamb who was slain. He endured the curse of our sin upon his own shoulders. And we thank you, Lord, that our Savior is indeed more stubborn than our sin, that he is more determined than our disobedience. And so, Father, we pray that your grace would not ever be a license to go on sinning, but that the wonder of your gospel would cause us to flee from sin, and to walk as children of the light. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.